Revelation chapter number 5 is where we're going to be at this morning. And uh, I want to preach to you about, uh, oh, what a power, amen. Um, if you were here last Sunday, um, we talked about the picture that we saw. And you remember we talked about the, <laughs> the final timeout, not the final countdown, right? How many of you sang that? Uh, there, was some, there was a kid that was singing it when they were walking out Sunday morning, the final countdown. And uh, they were rocking it out. And so, uh, um, but no, it was the final time out. If you remember, we've, we've been covering this period of the tribulation. And a lot of people go, Brother Steve, I never knew that there was that much. People have been talking to me. never knew there was that much in the Bible about the great tribulation. Never knew all of that. Um, the great tribulation actually covers in Matthew or Daniel chapter 9, 10, 11, 12. Daniel uh, talks about it in Jeremiah, talks about it in Isaiah, talks about it in Ezekiel. It also talks about it in Matthew chapter 24, Luke chapter 23. Uh, the Bible talks about it in the book of 2 Thessalonians. It talks about it also in the book of Revelation. It actually covers most of the book of Revelation for all the way from chapter number 6 to all the way to chapter number 18 in, into the beginning of 19. And so... This tribulation period is very important. You know, some people kind of go, well, I, I think we should just push that to the side. And, you know, we have all kinds of thoughts about it. Uh, some people say I'm a pre-tribulation person. I'm a mid-tribulation person. I'm a post-tribulation person. And what we really need to be is really don't classify ourselves as stuff like that. What we really need to be is biblicist. If you really want to be right, just be a biblicist, okay? And, and don't take that to go, well, just tell everybody that you're all about the Bible, and then you don't know what the Bible says. Because, <laughs> you know, if you say that you're a biblicist and you don't know the Bible... You're really not a biblicist. You're just babbling, so it's not very good. But we need to be about the Word of God. And uh, this morning, I'm trying my best not to keep you long. I only have three verses to preach from. But uh, evidently, people talk and say that I preach really, really long, even on three verses. And so they said that we'll see this morning. If you would, look at Revelation chapter 10 and verse number 5. We're going to be talking about, oh, what a power that we can see. In Revelation chapter 10 and verse number 5, and Brother Josh... Uh, don't have that on there, buddy. Now, uh, are we good to go yet? <laughs> it's got to be clicked in that middle there. You, you go ahead and put it on Revelation chapter 5 for, or chapter 10 for me in verse number 5. Thank you. Chapter 10 and verse number 5. I, I, it, you need to let me know and figure out something that's going on because something's wrong with it. And Josh, if you need to, you keep up with it. Look at chapter 10 and verse number 5. And the angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth lifted up his hands to heaven and swear by him that liveth forever and ever who created him and the things that are therein and the earth and the things that therein are and the sea and the things which are therein that there should be no time or excuse me, there should be time no longer. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he began to sound, the mystery of God should be finished and as he hath declared to his servants, the prophets. You know, the Bible says that God's going to wrap some things up. If you remember, we're in the final time out. And in the final time out, what we're talking about is that God has taken time out in the middle of this tribulation period, not to rapture the church out of there, because if you look at chapter number four of Revelation, the church was raptured out in the beginning. First Thessalonians gives us that promise. He says he's delivered you from the hour of wrath that is to come. Amen? Which, that's us. Because of our belief in Jesus Christ for the penalty of our sins and also for eternal life, amen, he says he'll take his church, his bride, out of here. He's not going to punish his bride, but he's going to take them out. But in the middle of the tribulation, there's another time out. And it's like all of this gloom, all of this judgment, all of this, this stuff is coming to the earth. And we've seen it when these trumpets are being blown. We've seen it when the seals are being opened. But you remember through all of this stuff, 
In chapter number 7, God said he sealed 144,000 from each tribe, 12 tribes of Israel, 12,000 from each tribe, which totaled up 144,000. It says that there was a number that was saved that nobody could number. When John looked down, he said, I couldn't even number and count all of the ones that were there from every tongue, tribe, nation, and peoples, right? But then the Bible also goes right into these trumpets. All this judgment is coming. Hang on with me. All this judgment is coming. Then all all of a sudden God says, another timeout. God puts this one, but this is the last one. God says he's not going to give another time out. All of these things are about to be completed. All of these things are about to be finished. And we're going to see what this wonderful power is today, man. Last Sunday, we talked about the Lamb of God. Remember the Lamb of God? We talked about how he is that roaring lamb that, that, that as he roared out, that there were seven thunders that were heard and all of this stuff happened. Listen, the Bible says that God is not only that triumphant lion of God, but he's also that wonderful sacrifice in the Lamb of God. We look at it, and let me say this to you before you sit down and before we pray. We look at the lion as being what? The most powerful animal. Everybody in here would agree that the lion is more powerful than the lamb. You would think that. Because you know why? We're looking in our own fleshly eyes and our own fleshly thoughts and our thoughts. But Isaiah says our thoughts are not his thoughts. They're much higher than our thoughts, and his ways are higher than our ways. And in the word of God, that lamb is so powerful. That lamb of God was what actually started it all. When you sit around during Christmas season and think about the humble birth of Jesus Christ, and he was brought here, placed in a manger, you got to understand, that's where the power came into the world, amen? It says that he took upon himself flesh, amen? He took upon himself the sin, and therefore he is the one that's powerful. The Lamb of God is a good story. It's not some story where they beat him all up, they killed him, they crucified him. It's a story of where the Lamb came and he laid his life down to do that, amen? Let's pray. Father, we love you, we thank you. God, we ask you that you please be with us as Brandon has prayed already, that, Lord, you'd be glorified, you'd be lifted up above everything. Father, I pray that the name of Jesus Christ, Lord, would be honored, Lord, would be shouted out by the time that we leave the service today. Father, I pray that if there's anybody that needs to speak to you, they need to talk to you, that, God, they would come immediately, that they would not wait for an invitation, but that they would come if they need to. Lord, if there's anyone, that, any one of us today, Lord, that is in sin and lost without you, I pray that today that they'd be saved. God, I don't say that and I don't pray that as repetitive or just flippant or just carelessly. Lord, I pray that with all of my heart. Every time we come together, Lord, if there's someone that doesn't know you, that they would know you. Lord, through the word of God that's preached, through the songs that are sung, Lord, through everything that's done, even through the fellowship as we shake hands and we hug necks and we tell each other hello, I pray that, God, someone that comes in this church, if they don't know you and they're lost, and, God, they're trying to find love and they're trying to find grace and they're looking for mercy, I pray that they see it in all the things that we do. They see Jesus through us, Lord. We love you. We thank you for everything. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. This morning, as we're talking about that power, one of the first things that I wanted to share with you is the wonderful message of Jesus Christ in this is in verse number 5. Read with me one more time. It says, The angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth lifted up his hand to heaven. The first thing, if you've got notes or you've got the notes this morning from the uh, uh, church bulletin, I just wanted you to write these things down before we get really, really into the message. Number one is this, is that we're talking about the majesty of Jesus Christ. And when we're talking about the majesty of Jesus Christ, his majesty is compelling to us. 
His majesty draws us. And when we talk about compelling, it's one that compelling means this. It means someone that is calling you, someone that is trying to pull you to something, but they're doing it also with authority or with power or with force. And what that means is, is that the Bible says, Jesus says, to go out into all the world and the highways and the hedges, it says, and compel them to come to the marriage. That's the gospel in a nutshell. We're supposed to be going out, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, and inviting them to come in to know Jesus as their Savior and into the marriage, amen, and eventually to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And the Bible says that we shouldn't do it in such a way where we go, hey, Andrew, you know, I'd like to talk to you about Jesus. And Andrew goes, no, I don't care. Okay, that's good. I'm fine. All right, I'll leave. No, it means that it comes by authority. It comes by a command of God. And it means to compel. It means forcefully, but it doesn't mean it like this, that I go over there and grab Andrew and put him in the headlock and go, hey, you ready to give your life to Jesus? You know what I mean? It doesn't mean that I go into my cabinet and get my crusader sword and tell him that if you don't come to Jesus Christ and therefore I'm going to kill you because you're an infidel and I'm not going to do that. And you... No, that's not the gospel the gospel is, is the compelling part of it all is, is that we're compelled to the message of Jesus Christ. And what it means is that we're moved by a commandment of God to do what? To tell people, compel them of their way that they're headed and how they are lost without God, amen? And that we want them to come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. You know, sometimes people come and they listen to the pastor, they listen to me, they listen to other pastors here, and they go, well, you got some loud guys, you know what I mean? You got some of them that are loud, and you got some of them that sometimes they get a little excited, and maybe they stomp around a little bit. I, I was under a preacher one time, he had cowboy boots, and he stomped all over, all over the stage, and people go, why do you got to be like that? Why, why do you have to do that? Why do you need to do those things? It's not that we need to do those things. There's something that stirs up in people sometimes, Okay? And you know what I'm talking about because you do it at ball games, right? You just, don't, you just reserve it for church, right? You don't do it at church, but you do it at ball games because while little Johnny hits a home run, we go nuts. Now, I've seen moms and dads that I go to church with act like a fool because of a home run. Amen. Don't look like it ain't you because you know it is. Then you come to church and there's nothing Nothing moved. See, that word compel means that it is something inside of you that is forcefully trying to do what? Make its way outward. Amen. Amen. Jeremiah said, if I didn't preach, he said, it would be like fire shut up in my bones. He said, I would slap burn up. Paul says this. He says, woe if I preach not the gospel. Listen, we, we have the greatest treasure in all of the earth. And we sing about Jesus, what a wonderful child. And listen, I'm telling you, I'm not, I'm not trying to condemn you. I'm not judging you. I'm just judging facial expressions. And we sit and we just go, it's good. Jesus, the wonderful child. We're, we've got to be the people that are moved by God. Moved in a way. Now, I'm not saying you have to act like me. I don't want you to act like me, okay? I'm going to be me and you be you. But worship, people go, well, everybody worships different. No, we don't. No, we don't. We praise God in different ways sometimes. But worship is an act of saying, you are greater than I am, and I am compelled to bow my knee before you and lift my hands before you and say that you are Lord and you are worthy of worship. Right. Worship is the exact same across the board. It may come in tears, and it may come in joy, and it may come in lifting up the hands, but it's got to come out. And when it's in you, it will come out. The old pastor used to say, what's in the well, the bucket brings up. Amen? Yes, you know that. 
You get on the interstate and you're driving up through there and someone cuts you off and you go, oh, why did I say that? Because it's in the well. It's in the well. Rhymes with well. Yes. People say it and they do all these crazy things. Listen, His majesty is compelling. Look with me one more time at verse number 5. It says, And the angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth lifted up his hand to heaven. Do you see that? He lifted up his hand to heaven. But what was he doing? He was standing upon the sea and he was standing upon the earth. His majesty is compelling. You say, what does this mean, Brother Steve? Does this mean that one day Jesus himself, that great messenger, as the Bible told us last, week, uh, last Sunday, that great mighty angel, another angel standing there clothed with the cloud, rainbow about his head, which is Jesus Christ himself, the great messenger of the Lord, when he stands upon the sea and he stands upon the earth, does that mean that he's going to have one foot on the United States and he's going to have another foot in the Atlantic Ocean? Does it mean that he's going to be that big? and that he's going to be that seen. No, it doesn't mean that, but what it's showing you is that his majesty or his worth or his wonderful, wonderful position is going to be so much greater. Listen, there is none greater in the world. There is none. Brother Josh, there's none greater in the world. Look at the computer screen, brother. (laughs) There is none that's greater in the world at all. No one is greater in the world. They get called up back there going, yes, yes, that's good. There's none. The Bible says in verse number 5, it says he has got one foot on the sea and one foot on the land. There is none that is greater than him. There's no one in Scripture, there's no one in any novel, there's no one in any book that's ever been what? wonderful enough or majestic enough to be able to put one foot on the sea and one foot on the land. There is no demon that will be able to have that much power. There is no doctor, there's no scholar, there's no philosopher, there is no psychiatrist, there's no scientist that could ever be that majestic to be able to do what? Be greater than anything or anyone in the world. Listen, when we talk about how wonderful he is and how great that he is, you got to understand, he sticks that foot out there and you see this mighty messenger and he's got it on one on the sea and one on the land. What does it mean? One foot on the sea shows us this, that every drop that's in the sea belongs to him. Nobody's greater. Think about it. You're going to go over here and take one drop, one glass out of the sea, try to walk all the way across and put it in the other ocean. Doesn't matter, you're just transferring it. But every ounce, every drop of water, when he sticks his foot in that sea, he is saying, it all is underneath me. He said, it all is beneath my power. He says what? That the, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. You know what the Bible says about the earth? Satan is proclaiming during the tribulation that all this stuff belongs to him. He's running around here like he owns everything. He's running around here like he's ruling everything in the tribulation. But halfway through the tribulation, Jesus appears and puts his foot in the sea. And he says, let me tell you something. All of this belongs to my Father. None of this belongs to you. Amen? That ought to move you a little bit, right? Make you blink twice or something, right? He says, listen, when he puts one foot on the sea, what is he doing? He said, it all belongs to me. What about when he puts one foot on the sand? He said, every single grain of sand belongs to me. Everything. If you were to try to take every grain of sand and move one grain of sand to another portion of the earth, you're doing nothing but transferring it. None of it belongs to us at all. 
You may go and buy a piece of property today for millions of dollars that has a wonderful shoreline, but it still is all going back to God someday. It's His. You know why? Because the Bible says not only is the fullness of the earth belonging to God, but it says that the earth is the Lord's footstool. Church, when He stands up upon the sea and on the land, He is going to stand there in majesty. Did you know that rulers... And people that purchased property, that that's what they would do in the days of Jesus, in the days of John, the apostle writing this scripture. That they would go to their property, or they would go to the land that they conquered, and they would put one foot in the water if it had a shoreline, and they would put one foot on that land, and they would declare that all of it belongs to them. Church, there's no one in this world greater than him. Number two, there is none greater in worth. There's none greater in this world, but there is none greater in worth. If you are to tally up the people in this church, and we're to look at what your estate and your life is worth as in a value, the Lord's calling. And you look at that. You go, well, Chase may be worth $1.3 million, right? boy, And Steve's worth like a buck fifty. You know what I mean? He only, he's only worth $1.50. I think that's all that I have. Well, I actually don't even have my wallet, so I'm not worth nothing. I'm not worth anything. If you're to tie up all of your net worth, you know what? People, people like to gloat about things like that and go, you know, I'm worth such and such. And why would you treat me in such a manner? Well, let me tell you something. If we were to put all of our worth here together in the church and combine it, our worth would never be greater than the worth of Jesus Christ. Bill Gates could never accumulate enough to be more worthy than Jesus Christ himself. There is none that has a greater worth. And you say, what do you mean in the worth in authority? The Bible says in verse number 5, it tells them that there's none that's greater. He's standing on the sea, and he's standing on the land. But look at what he's doing. He's got hands lifted in the air. Look at Revelation. Do you remember what it says in Revelation chapter 4, verse number 11? He says, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things. And for Thy pleasure they are and were created. You remember, this is the throne room. And in the throne room of God, they're all praising him, Brother Craig. And they're saying, God, the Father that's on the throne that did what? That created all things for his pleasure. And they were all created for him and by him. They're saying, there's no one here that's more worthy than you. There's none here. And what does he do? The Bible says that Jesus lifts up his hands. And he's got his hands up unto the Lord. He's got his hands up unto God the Father. And he's fixing to do something, church. He's got his hands lifted. And when he has his hands lifted, he is praising the Father. You say, what, what do you mean? Why would he praise the Father? Brother Steve, God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are all one. But why would the Son be praising the Father? Because the Son in the flesh is the Son of Man and Son of God. Amen. And as the Son of Man, He does as all of us should do. And that is to do what? Be fruitful and glorify our Father which is in heaven. Jesus even told him, He said, The time has come for you to glorify your name, Father. And what did God the Father tell the Son? I have glorified it and will glorify it again. Where's Brother Bill? Amen. He said, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Meaning, he will die, and people will think that he's not glorified, but he will glorify it again. Amen. Amen. I don't know who it was that said something about waving the towel and going, woo, this morning, but we ought to. We ought to. We ought to be running around and thanking God. Amen. Amen. Telling you, you take this kind of message and put it in a Pentecostal church, it'd go crazy in that place. Amen. Right? Because it's the Word of God. 
It's the Word of God, and we just look at it and go, hey, he said he lifted up his hands. You know what? If Jesus thought it worthy enough to lift up his hands to the Father, why do we not lift our hands up to the Father? Why do we not lift our hands up to the Father? Listen, I can understand if you're going to listen to this later on in the week through a podcast. If you're driving, don't, you don't need to lift your hands to the Father while you're driving. But when we're in the house of God together, there's times we just should go, Lord, thank you. God, thank you. You say, what do you mean when we lift our hands, Brother Steve? I, all I think about when we lift our hands up in praise to him, when we lift our hands up in needs to him, only thing that I think about is I think about a little child that's running to their mother or to their dad and they stick them arms out and they're just telling him or her how much they need him or her. And they're saying, Mom or Dad, I love you so much. Oh, I've missed you. Oh, I need you. Oh, I need you to hold me. I need you to help me. I need you to do what? To rescue me from the enemy. And they come running and they do that. Listen, we ought to learn from our kids. We ought to do that to the Lord, and we ought to lift our hands in the sanctuary. There's none that is greater in worth. Here's the third thing. There, or look at Matthew chapter number 5. Look at Matthew chapter number 5 with me. The Bible says, But I say unto you, Swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for, the city, uh, for it is the city of the great king. The Bible says in just a moment, we're going to talk about it in verse number 6, it says that Jesus... Does what? When he lifts his hands up to heaven, he makes an oath or he swears. Look at it. Revelation chapter number 10 and verse number 6, he says, And he swear by him that liveth forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are uh, therein are, and the earth and the things that therein are, and the sea and the things which are therein, that there should be time no longer. Look at what the Bible says. Jesus swore or he made an oath or he made a vow or he made a promise. There is none that's greater in word. There's none that is greater in the things that they speak and in the word that they give. Now look, Matthew, don't go there, but Matthew chapter 5 said what? Jesus told the Pharisees and all of those disciples that were around him, they said, listen, you shouldn't swear by heaven. And you shouldn't give an oath by the throne of God. And you shouldn't give an oath by the city of Jerusalem. In other words, you shouldn't do those things. And what they would do, church, is that as they would come into the place, that they would promise them and they would say, you ever heard it in the South? In the South, people probably go, you know what? I'll tell you this thing. And you go, are you, are you really being serious? You're going to give that to me? And, and, and people in the South go, on my mother's grave, I give you my vow. You know what I mean? I don't know why it's a mama's grave, but it's a mama's grave. And I don't know why if you step on a crack at your mama's back that breaks either, but that's the things in the South. By my mom's grave, right? Or they say, I pinky swear. You know what I mean? What they did was is that people started not keeping their vows and they didn't want to keep on damaging the mama's grave and so they just went with a pinky. Well, just, well I'll, I'll cut my pinky off if I don't keep my promise to you. I pinky swear to you. People make those promises. And then there's also those people that say, I swear before the Lord or I swear unto the Lord God. And they do that as in heaven. Listen, Jesus tells them to don't make that vow. And what he was saying is, he says, you're not worthy to do that. He says, you're not worthy to make that kind of vow. But see, there's none that's greater in word or in worth than Jesus Christ. And so when he stands with one foot on the sea and one foot on the land, he raises his hands up into the air. And when he tells them what's about to take place, about the things that are in the earth, and about the things that are on the earth, and about the things that are going to come hereafter, and how that time would be no more, there'd be no more delay, he swears by no one greater than who? Than God the Father himself. Amen. 
See, we learned this in the Old Testament. The Bible says that God called Moses. The Bible says God called Abraham. But when God called Moses because he could swear by no other greater, the Bible says that God said, if I do not keep my covenant and my promise with you unto Abraham, unto Moses, he said, listen, then I will cease to be God. It says because there was no other person greater to swear by. When he was saying is, is listen, there's no one above me, so we can't go higher in the commitment that I'm giving you. Amen? Amen. He said, so therefore, I promise you this, that if I do not bring you into this land and give it unto your people, then I will cease to be God. Amen? Because he swore by himself. The Bible says there's none greater, and Jesus stands on that shore, and he says, hey, I tell you through my majesty now, through the majestic glory of God the Father, there is no covenant greater than what I'm about to tell you. And I'm going to make a vow and I'm going to swear before my Father in heaven that created all of the earth and all the things that are in. He says what? What is the thing that he promised? Church, in verse number 6, he says that time shall be no longer. Time shall be no longer. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus says when I make this promise, boom, time is no more. Church, we're going to live for all eternity. He he didn't shut it down and everything just went black or blank. No, he's saying, I'm telling you now, this is the last time out. Listen to me. Jesus is saying, this is it. You know, right now, every time you come to church, pastors, they always end in an invitation. If they're worth the grain of salt, they end in an invitation. They give you a chance to come to the Lord every single time. And what do they do? Someone gets up and sings a verse of just as I am. Someone gets up and sings like Brother Brandon sang last Sunday, I think, uh, uh, come to Jesus. The Sunday before last, he sang softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling. Do you remember? And they're doing what? They're giving you another chance to repent. They're giving you another chance to come and to come and to come to the Lord. In this scripture, the Bible says Jesus stands upon the sea and upon the land, lifts his hands to heaven, and he says a message to everything in the earth and on the earth, all creatures, all creation, time will be delayed no more. The long-suffering of God that once waited in the days of Noah and winked at that repentance, their unrepentance, no more. Listen to me. What if today you saw the majesty of Jesus and you heard the glory of his word, his worth, all of those things. But yet when we leave here, I look at you and say, but God has said that time to repent, time to come, and those times, it's no more. That'd be the saddest thing you could ever hear. Jesus is saying, once the seventh trumpet sounds, once the seventh angel sounds, blows and begins the sound of the trumpet, there's no more delay in God's judgment. See, for the first three and a half years of the tribulation, God was still reaching. God reached the Israelites by sealing them. God used them. We're going to talk in a couple of weeks about two witnesses that witness on the earth about Jesus being the Lamb of God. People were saved. People repented. But the earth was still in chaos. A third of the earth, a third of the grass, a third of the trees, a third of the sea, a third of the waters, all that stuff. A fourth of this and a fourth. All of that stuff was going on. But God was still allowing people to come. 
It says that. It says that there was a number that no man can number. And they're coming. But after this, Jesus says there's no more delay. God's judgment, God's wonderful plan is going to be completed. But right now we see the majesty of Jesus doing what? Standing there, compelling. It's a compelling thing. Here's the second thing. We're going to talk about his mystery. It's captivating. The mystery of this Bible and the mystery of the Word of God is captivating. Listen, I, I know I, I'm using my soft Delilah 96.5 voice with you. But you're going to have to wake up. You're going to have to stay awake. You are asleep at the wheel, and you need to know this because somebody's going to come to you and ask you of the hope that lies within you, and you need to be able to tell them. Not just, hey, call Brother Steve. No, you tell them. The Bible says that his mystery, it's captivating. The mystery of God and the Word of God, it's a glorious book. I don't understand how much more I could emphasize on how important the Word of God is to you. I don't know how many more prayers and tears would roll down my eyes and talking to God about, Lord, please help our church to know that the Word of God is the most important thing they need. God, please let our church be people of the Word, people that study the Word, people that breathe the Word, people that speak the Word, people that live in the Word, people that can't get enough of the Word. Listen, what is the mystery? The Bible says, look with me in verse number 7 of chapter 10. It says, but in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished. It says the mystery of God. What is the mystery of God? Listen, the mystery of God is this. It's a previous truth that was concealed by God. It's a truth that God spoke but concealed that truth so that it would be revealed or brought to pass at a later time. It wasn't that God is trying to withhold something from you. It's that God is trying to bring something good to you in perfect timing. It's not that, it's kind of like the, the waiting for birthdays to come around or the waiting for Christmas to come around and the waiting for what? For anniversaries to come around. To do what? In order to enjoy and make those days special and make those days glorious for people, right? It, it's, excuse me, it's so when people come around and they, they have a meal together during Thanksgiving, people love Thanksgiving. Look around, folks. They love Thanksgiving. You know, during Thanksgiving, we have more green beans than ever in our whole year. During Thanksgiving, we, have, we eat more sweet potatoes than we do all year long. But the way that we do them, we take those roots out of the ground and, and put like blocks of sugar in them and, and pecans all over the top of them or marshmallows melted on them, right? Now some of you are waking up. You got you now. I got your attention now, right? Why, people sit around and they go, oh, I can't wait for Thanksgiving. Why can't you wait for Thanksgiving? We don't have dressing, Chicken and dressing any other time of the year, mostly. I mean, we'll eat a hot dog on any given Wednesday, any given day. We'll eat a pork chop at any time. But Thanksgiving, it's almost like that casserole dish of chicken and dressing is reserved for that day. You know what I mean? You may eat a turkey sandwich, but you don't eat the turkey like you eat it on Thanksgiving. Right? And you say, well, what is the mystery of God? The mystery of God is that God has spoken something or he has something in plan and he's given it, but he said you can't yet share it because it's going to be brought out at a certain time. It's going to have a certain meaning. It's going to be brought out. And when it's brought out, it's wonderful. You know, the Greek word for mystery in the Bible in the New Testament is mysterion. And it doesn't mean mystery like uh, uh, um 
magical or, or, or smoke and mirrors and lights and all that. Like, oh, it's a mystery. And it doesn't mean that it's a mystery as though it will never come to pass or never be known for the truth. The word mysteron means this. In the ancient time, it was used for religious cults. And they practiced secrecy for their members. They would have to undergo certain rites or rituals in order to be involved in these organizations or in these meeting places. And when they would do that, it's kind of like the, uh, everybody's seen the little rascals? Anybody ever seen that? You met anybody a member of the He-Man Woman Haters Club? You know, <laughs> Spanky and Alfalfa and all of them. What? Who couldn't come in? The girls couldn't come in. Why? Because they were dirty and filthy. I, you know what I mean? They made Alfalfa write a note to Darla. You know, dear Darla, I hate your stinking guts, right? <laughs> you are the scum between my toes. You know, you make me sick. Oh, because it was a boys' club. And they got mad at Alfalfa because they, he broke the secret code. He broke the secret code word and the password, and he had dinner with Darla inside the clubhouse. Shame on him. Shame on him. Right? They should have shaved his head and the twig, right? Listen, no, but that's not what it means in the Scripture. And there are a lot of people today that still try to have that kind of classification and think that they're glorious because they have something in secret. That's not the Scripture. That's not in the Word of God. It's not secret. To us, amen? As the song says, as Sister Gail sings sometimes, it is no secret what God can do, what He's done for others. He can do for you, amen? But in the book of Daniel, the word where we get, it's an Aramaic word, the word where we get this mysterion in the Greek in the New Testament is actually translated from an Aramaic word of the Old Testament that is the word raz. You know what I mean? Raz, R-A-Z. And in that old Aramaic word, it means this, a revealed secret. Something that could not be understood apart from a divine revelation or explanation from God. You say, Brother see, why are you so excited about that? Because that helps me understand what God is doing. That definition doesn't mean that God is withholding something from you. It means that it's a mystery that the lost of the world can't see because they don't have the Spirit of God and we, being the children of God, He's filled us in on what He's going to do. Amen. Don't you like that? Amen. Amen. Come on, let's get a little excited. Brandon said it this morning. You look at, when we go certain places, listen, I'll lean over and whisper in the boys' ear, this is what we're going to be doing. Nobody else knows, right? It's a mystery to them, but I revealed it unto the boys. Come on, y'all are not getting this. You're not getting it. My friend used to, we used to play backyard football. Anybody played backyard football before? Girls, raise your hand. Any girls did too? We had some, I ain't going to go into that. We had some girls that kill you. My buddy used to always go, this is what we're going to do. He'd make a play up for every play. And I'm like, man, just throw the ball. Throw the ball. You know, it's not that hard. He'd get down and he'd make a dirt pile. He'd pull the grass up and he'd start drawing plans out. And he'd go, this is going to be you right here. And this is going to be me right here. And I'm like, you talking about in the quarterback position? You know, you pretty much don't change. You know what? And then he'd lick his finger. And he would spit. And he would say, this is you over here talking to Andrew. He said, you're going to go out. And you're going to make a, you're going to make a left. You're going to go post and out. All right? Then you're going to come in. You're going to go post. And he would make all these plans up. But you know what? We didn't go to the line and go, hey, I'm fixing to run about five yards and go over here towards the porch. You didn't do that. You don't do that in real football. You don't do that. You may mistakenly do stupid things, but you don't do that. Why? 
cause you don't reveal it to them, they're not on your team. But thanks be to God, the mystery of God is not wrapped up in some kind of signs and oracles and you do this and you pull on your ear twice and left, you stomp your leg, your left leg four or five times and then we'll show it to you. No, he says if you're a son, if you're a daughter, he said the mystery that I'm going to show you, I give it all, I reveal it to you. Amen? Listen, the Bible says that Jesus used this word in the New Testament, mysterion, one time. And you know what he was doing? He was talking to the disciples and he explained the mystery of the kingdom of God. He didn't leave them in the dark. Are y'all with me? Listen, Paul used it 21 times. Paul used the word mystery 21 times. He said, I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those which are asleep. He said, behold, I'll show you something. I'll show you a mystery. Well, he said, I'll show you what? He said, we shall all sleep. We shall be changed. In the twinkling of an eye, the last trump of God, he talks about the rapture. He said, I'll show you these mysteries. Paul used the word 21 times. And on every occasion that he used that word, he was showing us that the mystery is already known to us by being revealed to us through the Spirit of God and through the Scripture of the context. You say, I don't know about that. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter number 1, Having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure which he hath purposed in himself. It says, having made known. What that means is, is if you have the Spirit of God and you have the Word of God, it's revealed to you. Because it's been made known unto you what the mystery of God is and the will of God. Look at Romans chapter 16, verse 25 and 26. Now the hymn that is of power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation. Look, of what? The mystery which was kept secret since the world began, but is now manifest. And by the scriptures, how is it manifest? By the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the everlasting God, it is made known to all nations for the obedience of faith. Amen? What it means is, is that sum it all up, Paul says 21 times about the mystery of God, and he tells them that the mystery of God is already known unto you, and if it's not known unto you, as we are preaching and explaining these things to you, then through the Spirit of God and the words that he has given the Apostle Paul, the mystery is made known. What, you say, what, what do you mean by that? To sum it all up, we ain't in the dark. To sum it all up, you need to stop using the excuse, Christians, whether you're young or old. Well, I just don't know it. Because the reason you just don't know it is because you just don't read it. The reason that you just don't know it is because you're not asking God about it. You say, well, see, but I don't know it like you know it. You're not supposed to know it like I know it. You're supposed to know it like you know it. You're a child of God. You're supposed to know these things. Listen, the mystery of God. What, what, what is the mystery of God? This past weekend, I know you may not believe me, but I've been reading part of a novel <laughs> that was wrote in 1719, 300 years ago, by a man by the name of William Taylor. The novel was called Robinson Crusoe. Right? And I know some of you are going, oh, I know that. You, 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 you didn't read the novel either, because I didn't. I didn't read it all. No, 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 what do we do? <laughs> I knew he'd say it out loud. In 1957, they made a movie. Right? Many of y'all, come on. Those of you that watched the 1957 version of Robinson Crusoe, raise your hand. Y'all remember what it is. I know you would remember when I tell you the story. Then later on in 1997, <laughs> Pierce Bronson made a new version of the Robinson Crusoe, right? Now, some of you probably have never even heard of Robinson Crusoe, but you've probably heard of the Swiss Robinson family from the Disney movie. How many of you watched that, right? Now you're speaking about, that's not even the same thing, okay? 
Listen, what happened was is that Robinson Crusoe was from England. As he set sail, he wanted to set sail, and his parents always forbid him to set sail. But as he set sail, listen, he, he voyaged all the way from England all the way to Brazil. He bought a plantation, set up residence, and did all of those things there. He sailed back, and he kept going back and forth, sailing all the time, and his parents always tried to stop him from going out and sailing. But he wanted to do that. But as he hooked up with some people that were actually trading slaves and were bringing slaves in, he had a shipwreck. And on his shipwreck, all the passengers, all the ones died. The only thing that survived was he, one dog, and two cats. It never could have been two dogs. It always would have to be two cats. You don't like cats, right? And those, those animals survived, but he was shipwrecked on a deserted island. He even named the island the Island of Despair. You know, it's a good writing. Island of despair, because where he was, he was in despair. He took the boat before it finally was broken apart by all the waves coming in. He took all of the stuff off the boat, and he went and stored it, and then he came back, and as the boat was being torn to pieces, he would grab the boards and grab all of the things, and he went inside of this cave as he looked at it, and he went and examined everything, and he built him a little hut right there beside the cave. After years had passed in the story, it actually says that he realized that there were native cannibals in the area on other islands that were bringing their prisoners over to the island to store them. And when they would bring their prisoners over to store them, they were either to die there or they would bring them over to kill them and to eat them. And so Robinson Crusoe said he was going to stop this ungodly thing, him being a great Christian from England, he was going to stop this tragedy from happening. But he said he was spoken to by God in his heart and he said that God told him they did not understand what they were doing was wrong. And so what he did was that he spared one of them and brought him in as a servant of his own. He did not speak any of the dialect and so in order to call him or talk to him, he called him Friday. Anybody remembering the movie at all now? Robinson Crusoe and Friday. He called him Friday. You, listen, there's a big, big, huge theological reason why he called him Friday. He found him on Friday, and he just called him Friday. And listen, he sat down and taught Friday English. He taught Friday how to act. He taught him certain things. But listen, this is the great part of the book. He eventually teaches Friday about Christianity, and he finds that although he readily accepts Crusoe's explanations of God and Jesus, he finds the devil to be a more difficult concept to accept. And this is what the book says. After this, I had been telling him how the devil was God's enemy in the hearts of men and used all of his malice and skill to defeat the good designs of providence and to ruin the kingdom of Christ in the world and the like. Well, says Friday, but you say God is so strong, so great. Is he not much strong, much might as the devil? Yes, yes, says I, Friday. God is stronger than the devil. God is above the devil, and therefore we pray to God to tread him down under our feet and enable us to resist his temptations and quench his fiery darts. But, he says again, if God much stronger, much might as the wicked devil, why not God kill the devil so make him no more do wicked? He said, I was strangely surprised at this question. After pretending at first not to hear him in order to buy time, and reflecting on the fact that he isn't really qualified to answer such deep religious questions, Caruso comes to this explanation. By this time, I had recovered myself a little and said, God will at last punish him severely, Friday. He is reserved for the judgment and is to be cast into the bottomless pit and to dwell with everlasting fire. 
This did not satisfy Friday, but he returns upon me, repeating my words. Reserve at last. Me no understand. But why not kill the devil now? Why not kill the devil great long ago? You may as well ask me, said I, why does God not kill you or me? He says, when we do wicked things here to offend him. He said, we are preserved to repent and to be pardoned. And it says, he mused on this sometime and said, well, well, mighty affectionately, that well. He said, so you, I, devil, all wicked, all preserve, all repent. God pardon all. Here I was, run down again to him by the last degree. The mystery of God. Why doesn't God just kill the devil and get rid of all this stuff? Anybody ever thought that before? You ever thought it on a Friday? <laughs> you ever thought about it and you go, this master plan of God, this mysterious plan of God is to do what? Create angels and create mankind and humanity. An angel sins and falls. And in his despair, he goes out and tricks a woman and a man into sinning. And God is greater than all. Why does not God just kill the devil? Why did he not kill him long ago if God is greater than the devil? And you know what? You'll think about that. And you'll think about it. And you'll go, wow, it is a mystery. It's a mystery of God. And apart from the word of God, we would never be able to understand it. Which brings us to the last thing. Is the ministry of Jesus Christ will be completed. It is being completed. Look at verse number 7. It says, But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God, look at these words, should be finished. The mystery of God would be finished as he has declared unto the servants or his servants and the prophets. Church, the mystery of God will be completed in the ministry of the Lamb. See, apart from the Word of God, we don't have that wisdom. And apart from the Holy Spirit of God, we don't have that understanding and that discernment. The world looks at you and goes, why would you serve a God who created you, but yet you sinned? He created the devil also, but yet you sinned, and then turn around and send his son to redeem you. Why would, I don't understand that. I don't grab a hold of that. But see, when we receive him as our Savior and we receive the understanding through the Holy Spirit of God, we know that God has not just a mysterious plan of the mystery of God, but it is a wonderful and mighty ministry that Jesus was going to fulfill. And God took his son, who it says was slain before the foundations of the world were created, took that mystery in church, he put it aside. He put it aside. To do what? To be revealed in time. To be revealed at a certain time. When was that certain time? When the fullness of sin would be upon the earth. When the fullness of sin would come. The Bible says they took his son and nailed him to a cross. Church, I want to give you these last things as Brandon comes. You know, the Bible says, Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, And she shall bring forth a son... And thou shalt call his name Jesus. This word Jesus means that he saves. Jehovah saves. It says, why? For he shall save his people from their sins. Notice those words. 
He shall save his people from their sins. He come to do a ministry. He had a purpose. And he was coming to save. The Bible says in Luke chapter 10, I think it is, it says that he came to seek and to save that which was lost. He came to fulfill the plan and the mystery and the ministry of God. John the Baptist said it in John chapter 1, verse number 29. Look at what he said. The next day, John seeth Jesus coming unto him, and he said unto him, Behold the Lamb of God. What does it say? Church, read it. Which taketh away the sins of the world. Which taketh away. He has come to do that. Church, Jesus just coming and being born in a manger and never dying is not life. It's not forgiveness of sins. Him just coming and saying, hey, I'm here with you was not enough. Listen, we've got to understand that we are saved and we are forgiven of our sins because of his death, because of his ministry. That's why nobody took his life. Nobody killed Jesus. Jesus laid his life down. That's where the power is found. See, we were bound up in our chains and sin. We were bound up in what? Depression and discouragement because of the sin and the disobedience of God. But Him sending forth His Son as the only spotless Lamb of God. Amen. The precious blood of that Lamb because of His death. It's because of His death. Brother, see, y'all preach about blood too much. You talk about the death too much. You talk about all that too much. That's where the power is. What can wash away my sin? Absolutely nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Absolutely nothing but the blood of Jesus. Amen? Church is not wrapped around programs. It's not wrapped around giving this and giving that. It's not wrapped around come and do these things and eating and all that. Church is wrapped around the blood of Jesus Christ. And it's not a mystery. And it's not hidden. It's not a secret. We don't ask you to come to the church and join in service with us and tell you some kind of secret handshake or secret code word or secret thing that we do. No, it's not a secret. No, it's a mystery that's revealed. And when you get saved, it comes to pass and you understand it. And man, it cuts out of you. It comes out. The Bible says we're not saved and we're not forgiven of our sins because of His life. But we're saved and forgiven because of the death of Jesus Christ. Here's the last two scriptures I'll give you and we'll go home. Hebrews 9.22, it says, And almost all things are by the law purged with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Remission means forgiveness. Without his blood being shed, there's no forgiveness. So if Jesus came as a baby, and they put him in a manger, and we celebrate his birth, but we don't roll around years later and understand his death, we have no forgiveness of our sins. We have nothing. All we have is one that's born. We have nothing. The Bible says in Leviticus chapter 17,